You know how they call the U.S. a melting pot? They call Canada a mosaic. The difference, apparently, is that melting pot implies everyone has to assimilate. Mosaic, meanwhile, means everyone has a unique identity that weaves together to create the overall fabric of Canada. As Canadian millionaire Jim Estill told me, and awesome BBC producer Andy Crossan, who's Canadian herself, he said, up north, diverse people are normal. Here, it doesn't stand out at all. You're not even special. It's okay. like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say for the record, he told Rupa Shinoi she's not even special. <laughs> this was last week. Andy and I were in Toronto because just a month into Donald Trump's presidency, people are fleeing the country. Undocumented people and people who've applied for asylum, fearing deportation, are braving intense cold to cross into Canada. We visited a clinic where they're living through the fallout from America's choices. That's the first part of this episode. There, a doctor told me that I blended in with the diverse refugees who came for medical care. The second part of this episode is back with Jim Estill, who doesn't think I'm special because having a unique identity is normal in Canada. He sponsored 50 Syrian families and with help from volunteers, provides them with housing, education, and jobs. But there are some strings attached. I let them eat meat, but it's, meat's not healthy and it's not good for the world. We all know that. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Otherhood. Edward? I did blend in with the patients at the refugee clinic. They were an assortment of Africans, South Americans, and others, and I was just another shade of brown. I sat for hours in the long hallway that serves as the waiting area for the Canadian Centre for Refugees and Immigrants. It's in an old house outside Toronto. Families were huddled together, talking quietly, waiting to see a doctor. I was doing the normal creepy reporter thing, trying to talk to them. And yeah, it can feel pretty sleazy. It's all about buddying up to people quickly, making them feel comfortable, and then making the ask, will you tell me what's happened to you, and can I stick this huge microphone in your face and record you? Over the years, I've done that a lot. But I'm not sure I've ever been so worried about pressuring or exploiting people. Because these people were scared. You could see it in their eyes. It wasn't just fear of danger. It was also fear of telling their story and being judged and doubted again. One woman from Venezuela told me people in the U.S. and Canada just don't believe what's happening in her country. They don't even know where my country is. It is hard to find the food. It is hard to buy milk. That is like a really basic stuff. And you are lucky you can find even pads when you have the period. We can't. I know that other countries can't do anything for us. But sometimes I wish, I wish that they help us. Like many patients at the clinic, the woman asked me not to use her name. Her right eye was purple, swollen, puffy. The doctor told her it was caused by stress. She's worried Canada won't accept her request for asylum. She's been getting by, working cleaning and construction jobs under the table, things she never would have done in Venezuela, but that she does in Canada to survive. Canada taught me how to be tough, how to be strong, how to be... I don't know, smart, and that nothing is impossible for me. She trusts Canada to give her a chance, 
to treat her humanely, even if it doesn't accept her request for asylum. She doesn't trust the U.S. I never consider go there because I know that it's really, really, really hard got the papers there. It's really hard and it's already hard here. So I can't imagine how it's there. Especially under the Trump administration. Trump's ban on travelers from nine Muslim-majority countries is still being blocked by the courts. Now the president's rolling out new policies that would build what would virtually be a domestic army with broad powers to deport undocumented immigrants easily and quickly. Administration officials say the American public shouldn't overreact. Only people who've committed or been charged with crimes will be targeted. But undocumented people and their families are scared. Just ask Canadians. Refugees who once would have gone to the U.S. are now going to Canada. On top of that, Canada's seen a spike in illegal immigration. Like a scene from some dystopian novel, families are wading through waist-deep snow, lugging suitcases to cross from the U.S. into Canada, in places where the border is mostly unmarked, unfenced, and unguarded. They're brought to places like the Refugee Center, where they're treated for advanced frostbite, dehydration, and hypothermia. The clinic's lead doctor, Paul Calford, says they've seen the number of patients like that double. There's no question what's driving them. These families aren't using the regular routes into Canada because of a loophole in international law. Legally, if you've applied for asylum in the U.S. and you try to officially enter Canada to also apply for protection there, you'll be deported. But if there's no record of a family crossing the U.S.-Canada border and they just show up in Canada, the family can apply for refugee status. So that's what some families are doing. Paul says most of the new arrivals so far are from sub-Saharan Africa, mostly from Nigeria. They're scared of being sent back to places where they'd be killed by warlords or gangs, or they'd be forced to circumcise their daughters. We know people in our community who've been turned back to the United States and arrested. When we ask these women here if we have a media request, uh, would they care to discuss anything with the media, they tremble and they start crying. And exposure would be very, very harmful to them because of where they're coming from. And when they choose to, when they're stronger, when they're able to, they will come forward and they will, they will tell their story. So for now, Paul and his colleagues are telling it. All of the people we've seen are women and children, from pregnant women in the back of trucks to those who are just shepherding their children to safety have said to us that the United States is no longer a safe country for them to be in. They made their claims or were planning to make their claims for asylum in the U.S. and have learned very quickly from media and from hyperbole and from um, community that they've come to and who are helping them that this is now a changed nation. And they've all had cold journeys in the back of trucks to save their lives, literally by fleeing from, if you can believe this, the United States of America. They pay smugglers who lock them in trucks to bring them over the border. One patient described the truck door opening, several have actually described this, and the words are, get out. And they said, but it's freezing cold, and they're not properly dressed, and they have three children. The youngest we've seen is 18 months, and was pulled out of that truck, and literally discarded or abandoned in a remote park in Toronto, another one along a roadway. And we're told to wait that another 
agent, they call them agents, would pick them up, and they never arrive. And they will wait there for two to three hours because they're getting weaker. They don't know what's happening to them. They've not been in cold exposure before. They don't know about snow banks and fingers falling off. And, you know, that is what we're actually seeing now that walks through this door with a, with a harmed or dead hand now because they were covering the face of their child for three hours in a snowbank in Toronto. Sumathi Rahanathan, the clinic's volunteer coordinator, says mothers take the brunt of the cold because they do everything they can to keep their children warm. So these kids come in relatively okay, and the mom is just dragging her hand because she doesn't know what's going on with the hand. And they don't even know what happened. They just came inside and all of a sudden the hand stopped working. They feel comfortable, they tell us things, and to the point where we're obligated to help. It's, it's to not help, it's, you can't just not do it. They, they tell you a story and you just do it. But should Canada pay for what happens in the U.S.? I asked the clinic's executive director, Brad Sinclair, and he said the question itself doesn't matter. The world will unfold as it unfolds. We're not going to be able to have any influence on what happens in the USA or in the EU or in sub-Saharan Africa. Those things are going on. But I do know that the, the, uh, the implications of that is that people are going to be arriving here on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night who are sick and who need help. And we're going to be there to give them the help because they need help and because that's what we do in Canada. These folks are proud that their country continues to take in refugees despite the worldwide trend toward isolationism. Dr. Paul again. Canada is opening our doors when other countries are closing theirs. And the public support for the work we're doing, it's suggested and confirmed that I believe we are a compassionate nation. America's loss is Canada's gain here, is what I believe. And we're going to open our arms and we're going to continue to build a world vision. There are vocal critics in Canada who want Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to do more to keep refugees out. As it is, the clinic staff estimate about half their patients applying for asylum actually get it. And meanwhile, Canada doesn't provide these migrants with health care, even though it otherwise has universal health care. And health care costs can get out of control fast. Sumathi, the clinic coordinator, says some refugees who've had to go to the hospital ended up in deep debt. Everyone just thinks they're in Canada, they're okay now. Yeah, and But they're at our doorstep, and we're fighting to make sure that they get all the care that they really do need. This makes Sumathi reflect, because she's a refugee herself from Sri Lanka. And she can't see a big difference between the people coming to Canada for help now and her. How long does it take to be Canadian enough to get health care, right? So is in the first three months, is the first week you arrive, have you been here for 10 years? We have patients like that. And it's a, it's a Canadian ideal that we get this, that we get health care, but there's all these people who aren't getting it. Unfortunately, Canada isn't perfect. The circumstances of those few days and weeks when a refugee family first arrives in a new country, that time is critical. If they get the right resources right then, it puts their lives on a new trajectory, a much better one. To find out how much better, researchers are studying the city of Guelph, about an hour outside Toronto. That's where Jim Estill settles his hand-picked Syrian refugees. 50 families, about 200 people in all. 
With help from hundreds of volunteers in local churches, synagogues, and mosques, he's set them up with housing, food, healthcare, English language training, and for many, jobs in the appliance factory Jim runs. I feel now life, new life, good. Rola and her husband Ahmed are some of the newest arrivals. They got here three months ago, and we're not using their last name because they still have a son in Syria who could be threatened. Rola's still learning English. I tell her she can speak in Arabic if she wants and have Ahmed translate. Jim Estill butts in and says, nope, we're not doing it that way. They need to learn English to succeed in Canada. <laughs> yeah, just today, just today, just today. <laughs> Again, Jim says no. In many ways, he's saved this family. But Jim definitely has his rules. I don't have TV. No. <laughs> no. Ah. Jim, he said no TV. <laughs> Jim said no TV. Yeah, but really, what he said. He's have a right. I'm mad when he said no. But first time, just one minute, maybe two minutes. Don't have time for TV. I, really? I don't have a television. <laughs> and, and I don't believe, and I don't believe yeah. in, t- I don't believe in television. But I do come, ar- I have come around. It isn't a bad way to learn English. So I may be changing my mind. All right, all right. Now I have to ask: <laughs> Is there anything else that he's saying yeah. that you should do and not do? No. Yeah. Really? It was just the TV. Well, no. I. Uh, well, no, no. Sometimes they they eat meat, and that's not healthy. Remember? Oh my Yeah. I I I I let them eat meat, but it's meat's not healthy. And it's not good for the world. We all know that. <laughs> meat the chicken, no. <laughs> Ahmed adds, he's also had to stop smoking. To this, Jim delivers one of his favorite lines. See, that's the difference between Canada and uh, Syria. In Canada, smoking isn't healthy. (laughs) Jim can be corny, but it's his generosity that makes Ahmed emotional. I mean, I can't look to him. You know why? This guy, I respect him so much. When I come here, before I come, I'm, I'm dead. Canada and James give us the good hand. Now my, our turn to give Canada and James. I promise myself to be good in this country. I feel him like a brother for me. Ahmed says some of the changes Jim wants are surprising, but also rewarding. For example, Jim hates segregation. He doesn't like smoking, but it bothers him more that all the people outside his plant smoking are Syrian. He had to ask a white employee to try out smoking to integrate the group. And when Jim sees Syrians self-segregating at the plant cafeteria, he can't stand it. One time he, he said something about why the Syrians sit together, why you don't sit with the Canadian people. We start to make a friend right now. We start to understand this right now. In a different life and a different world, Jim and Ahmed could have been business associates. Jim wears a blue work shirt like anyone else at his factory, but he's roughly at the Donald Trump level of business success. He was one of the founding board members of the smartphone company BlackBerry. He started and sold many other big companies, retired young, 
and then came on to run Danby Appliances. Jim has access to information about all the refugees he's helped and says Ahmed owned the equivalent of a Saks Fifth Avenue in Syria. He's just a, he's a business guy like me. But circumstances in the world have made Jim the one who ended up feeling like he was playing God with other people's lives. He started his effort to bring Syrian families to Canada in 2015. And ever since, people have been emailing him with desperate pleas for help. Before U.S. President Trump took office, Jim was getting a few dozen emails every day. After Trump took office, Jim says the emailed pleas for help multiplied. This has been a massive increase. Now I'm getting probably five times as many. And I've had approaches from people from the States who want to come here. They tell him they're from one of the seven countries banned by Trump from entering the U.S. They've applied for protected status in America, but think they'll probably be deported. They're fearful that uh, they're not going to have a place to stay. But Jim can't help everyone. He tries to sponsor people he thinks will contribute to Canada's economy and social fabric, mostly nuclear families, preferably with grandparents who will take care of kids while parents work. Uh, I don't tend to sponsor single men. I don't tend to sponsor single mothers. Jim says half of his families are already working and paying their own way. But some new arrivals are disappointed in the blue-collar factory jobs. Jim wants them to work. You have some people who researched on the internet where the softest country is to come and where the most cushy place to go is and don't necessarily want to work uh, hard. And that goes against my work ethic and whatnot. And so people have to get over that initial hump of saying, I will only do white collar work. And that's one of the reasons I like bringing families. Parents are grateful to do anything that means their kids have better lives. I don't want them to lose gratefulness. I don't want them to be grateful to me. I want them to be grateful for their life. And if you're grateful for your life, you will have more success in life. I guess to some extent, the gratefulness makes up for some of the uh, times when there's not as much gratefulness. And where that happens is where there's a uh, disconnect in expectation. So people um, read on the internet when you come to Canada, everything's provided and whatnot, and then you find out, oh, but my couch is used. And they say, oh, I didn't want a used couch, or I wanted a green one, not a blue one. And so there are some people who are not as grateful. And it's the same thing with uh, the reaction you get from the public. I get huge support from most people, but once in a while you get people who are uh, basically thinking I'm bringing in terrorists and, uh, and that I should that I'm a reprehensible individual, so you get flamed, and when you get flamed, it's the good things that keep the bad things from making you feel bad, if that makes sense. But Jim's been disappointed that no one else has really replicated his model. I have not heard of anybody saying that they're going to do what we're doing, at least not on the scale that, that we're doing. I had hoped when I did this that I'd do 50 families, and then someone said, oh, well, if he can do 50, I'll do 100, and someone else said, oh, I'll do 200, yeah. and, and whatnot, and Guelph is... 130,000 population, 120,000 population. I thought, you know, there's lots of places bigger than this. There's lots of businesses bigger than Danby Appliances. So I thought someone else can step up and, and do it. Uh, I just haven't seen it, but I have talked to a lot of good, well-meaning people who are sponsoring people. And we've shared a lot um, with those people because it's a lot easier doing it on our scale than doing it on one as, as an individual. Before we leave, we have to try the many sweets Rola has laid out for our visit. Baklava, custard, bread. These options don't exactly go with Jim's obsessively healthy diet. But after hundreds of visits to the homes of newly resettled Syrian families, 
He's stopped fighting the food they insist he eat. So he munches some snacks quickly, leaning against a freezer he bought for Ahmed and Rola. This, this doesn't look as big. But when I was carrying it up four stuff plates of stairs, it looked, it was pretty big. One time he, come, he said, you have uh, something you want it. I said, I want TV. He said, no. Okay, <laughs> I want the uh, freezer. He said, okay, tomorrow morning he come, I come for freezer. But freezer TV, no. <laughs> Yeah, computer. So this was the consolation prize <laughs> from the TV. <laughs> they, they can watch the freezer. <laughs> Rolla tells Jim, don't worry, there's no meat in the freezer. We haven't broken another rule. Don't have meat inside. <laughs> no meat? No. Oh, that looks like meat to me. No. <laughs> and Jim's off again, teasing them. Ahmed and Rolla are Canadian now, and that's not how Canadians do things. Or at least, that's not how Jim does things. Is it just a coincidence that Canada was also the place American slaves escaped to before the Civil War? Or is something inherently different about Canada and its approach to multiculturalism because it doesn't carry the legacy of slavery that the U.S. has? Let me know what you think on Twitter or Otherhood's Facebook page. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. Le sauvage